Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. As you guys know, if you've been with us since Easter, we've been doing a series on faith. Pastor Tim has been preaching on faith. And we're going to continue that series this morning. And my sermon this morning is titled, A Faith That Receives, from Mark 11, 20 through 25. And since we haven't read it yet, let's read it one more time, or again for the first time. So we're in Mark 11, 20 through 25. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, for if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Amen? Well, as we kick off our sermon this morning, I have a question for you all. And the question is this. Do you believe that God truly desires to do good in you, for you, and through you? Do you truly believe that God desires to do good in you, for you, and through you? If I'm being honest with you as we come this morning, I've wrestled with that question for the last two weeks preparing for this sermon. Today's passage is a pretty difficult passage. If you go to YouTube and type in Mark 11, you're gonna find two types of sermons. You're gonna find one type of sermon where people are saying, God said it, if you claim it, you will receive it, right? And then you'll find another type of sermon where people are like, well, Let's not take this too seriously, right? Let's not take it too, too seriously. Let's go somewhere else. And it's usually kind of this redirect. And so as I was wrestling through this passage this week, the story that kept kept coming to mind is the story of Jacob from the book of Genesis. Are you guys familiar with Jacob? So in the book of Genesis, if you're familiar with Jacob, Jacob is a little bit of a scoundrel. He's one of two sons, the sons of of, uh, Isaac, correct, right? Am I getting that right, Sam? Where's Sam at? Double check me. So Jacob, son of Isaac, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob does his brother Esau dirty, right? He steals Esau's birthright and takes his place in the family order. And because he does this, he kind of skips town and disappears for a series of years. And so when we find Jacob in chapter 32 of Genesis, he is about to see Esau again for the very first time since he stole his brother's birthright. And so he sends his family away and he spends the night by himself. And I can only imagine that for him, it was one of those nights where you're sweating it out all night long. Like you don't know what's gonna come next because you're facing down something so big. We might even say it's a mountain, right? So Jacob is facing down this mountain, this relationship with his brother. He doesn't know, know what's gonna happen. And Genesis tells us that out of the blue, He gets caught in this fight with a stranger, a total stranger out of the darkness comes and Jacob is wrestling with this person beside the firelight. And as the wrestling continues, Genesis reveals to us and implies that Jacob would have realized as well that he was wrestling with God. And do you know what Jacob does? He wrestles with God so fiercely That God, halfway through that fight, goes, there's no way I'm going to win this. And so he touches Jacob's hip, pops it out of socket, and you know what Jacob does? Doesn't let go. He just keeps on going. And finally, God says to Jacob, 
why won't you let go? And he says, I will not let go until you bless me. I will not let go until you bless me. And so that day, that night, as, he, as Jacob is staring down this battle, this impending re, re, relationship with his brother, like coming to the forefront, he's staring down his mountain, God blesses Jacob. In Genesis 32, God gives Jacob the name Israel, and Israel means one who strives with God, one who literally wrestles with God. This morning, my prayer is that we would wrestle with God as we take on a part of Scripture that can be hard to understand, and maybe even harder still, if you're like me, hard to believe. Do you believe that God truly desires to do good in you, for you, and through you. Now before we jump into that, we're gonna have to backtrack a little bit. So we're gonna turn back to Mark 11, verse 12, and we're gonna read what comes before our passage today. And our passage today is hard enough in and of itself, but as you read, you'll see, maybe I want you to notice something. Notice how the, the character of Jesus, what you might think and who you might think Jesus is, shifts in these two little sections of Scripture before this one. Notice what Jesus may appear like. Think, put yourself in the mindset of those who are with Jesus and think about what you're observing. So starting in verse 12 of chapter 11, Jesus has just come in. He's just come in to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Now he's headed to the temple. And it says, on the following day when they came from Bethany... He was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses the tree, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus is raging, right? Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? And don't think like Jesus is now sat in a chair and he's going, is it not written? No, no, Jesus is yelling at them. He is angry. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so the next morning, as we started, they come back, they're headed back to the temple, right? And they see the fig tree. And what does Peter say? The fig tree is dead, it's withered, right? Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You've walked for the last 11 chapters of Mark, you've walked with Jesus, you've seen him do incredible things, you've seen him bend down, pick up small children when everyone else wanted them to go away, when you yourself, you yourself were shooing them away, you've seen him feed 5,000, right? You've seen him do incredible things with tenderness and grace and mercy, and all of a sudden, homeboy has lost his mind, right? He curses a fig tree, for no good reason. You're, you're, why in the world did he do that? Then he goes into the temple and he rages, absolutely rages. And if you were one of the disciples, probably Peter specifically, who if you know anything about the story of Peter, he's one of my favorites in the New Testament, man was all over the place. So he's probably like, all right, okay, all right, let's go. That's what I've been waiting for, right? 
But Jesus is doing something here that is essential to understand if we are to understand the teaching from 20 to 25. You see, Jesus comes on this fig tree, and Mark tells us that the fig tree is early in leaf. Anyone, anyone in the first century who knew just a little bit, a little bit about the, the flora and the fauna around Jerusalem would have known that that fig tree should not have already had leaves. So when Jesus sees it with leaves on it, he sees a fruitful tree, right? He sees a tree that's early, it's fruitful, like, oh yeah, let's go. Comes up to it, there's no fruit. He's angry. Now, he pivots immediately to Jerusalem. If you were a first century Jew going up to Jerusalem, especially around the time of Passover, which is when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, you would have seen a temple alive. There would have been activity everywhere. Just like the fig tree, that temple would be bustling with life. And yet, what does Jesus find when he comes to the temple? Death. He finds spiritual death. There is no fruit there. There is no fruit. There are men and women taking advantage of God's house of worship and turning it into a place of enterprise. That's not what the temple was made for, amen? And what the, the disciples don't know now, but what they will find out soon, is that Jesus is going to do something incredible. If you know anything about the temple, you know that the temple, starting with Moses and Aaron, God establishes it as, as a place where his people can commune with him, right? Moses and Aaron take um, the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments, they put it inside the Holy of Holies, and only God's chosen priests, those who have been sanctified, are allowed to go in before God on behalf of the people. But God's people would come to the temple and bring their sacrifices, repenting of their sin and receiving forgiveness. They would come to fellowship, to worship, to glorify God. That was the center of everything that they did. And what Jesus is about to do when he dies on a cross and comes back to life is he's about to wipe the temple off. He's about to replace the temple with himself. When Jesus says in the New Testament, you destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days, he's literally saying the temple is going away and I am coming again, right? That no longer will you worship, no longer will you repent, no longer will you find communion and fellowship with God in the temple, you'll find it in me. This is dramatically illustrated when Jesus dies on the cross and the curtain is ripped open and it symbolically represents that no longer is there a barrier between you and I and God. No, we have one who intercedes on our behalf and literally goes before us as the firstborn of a whole new creation so that you and I might have communion and fellowship with God, right? That's the context, that's the stage that's being set for, God's, for Jesus' disciples. They don't know it yet. It's hard to see, but they will soon. And so Jesus is teaching, he's teaching them about something to come, right? He's talking to, them, talking to them about a faith that they do not understand as of yet. And this morning what I want us to talk about is that same faith, a faith that receives. Because Jesus is not simply doing away with something so that the disciples no longer have, doing away with something so that his people no longer have. Jesus is doing away with something so that he can replace it with something better, so that he can give us a gift that we might receive the gift of life. Amen? And so as we look at these verses and we dig into them specifically and we ask, oh, Lord have mercy, what does a faith that receives look like? What are you talking about, Jesus? I want you to have these three things in mind. A faith that receives trust God, a faith that receives praise boldly, and a faith that receives forgives others. All three of those things show up 
in these five verses, and I think are essential to us understanding exactly what God is doing. So let's start with trusting God. Notice now, turning to verse 20, how Jesus points out the dead fig tree the morning after Jesus has cleared the temple. And Jesus says what to him? He says, have faith in God. Now remember, we've just talked about it. Jesus' disciples are probably looking at him and going, this guy is crazy. Like, this guy has lost his mind. They finally got to him. Like, he's been persecuted. He's been chased out of town. And now he's lost it. He's beat everybody up. And he's coming to us. He's killed this poor little fig tree. What did the fig tree ever do? Right? And now he's just saying, have faith in God. Have faith in God. But what the disciples don't quite realize yet is what Jesus is calling them to is urging them to trust in God's character and God's work. He's urging them to trust in God's character and God's work. For us to have a faith that receives, we also must trust in God's character and God's work. At the beginning of today's sermon, I asked you a question. I asked you, do you believe that God truly desires to do good in you, for you, and through you? Jesus is challenging us in this passage with that question. He is saying to the disciples then and to us now, do you believe that God is working for your good, right? I've just brought death and destruction. I've just overturned some tables. Do you believe God's doing that for your good? Do you think that there's a good purpose to what seemingly to you is a bad, bad means, right? Even here in the midst of Jesus' anger, he is working for the good of his people. Following Jesus' death and resurrection, I can only imagine that the disciples would have sat back and thought, reflected back on this story, and the light bulb would have clicked, right? They would have seen it. They would have seen a Jesus who healed the woman bleeding and raised a dead girl in Mark 5. The Jesus who calmed a storm in Mark 3. The Jesus who cast out demons, fed 5,000, walked on water, again bent down to embrace the little children among us. And they would have been struck by his character and his works and then realized that they could finally trust someone who would never let them down. That in that moment, when the tomb is empty, the disciples would have realized, oh, that's what was going on. I thought I couldn't trust you. I thought you let me down. I thought you marched your butt to Jerusalem through a temper tantrum and they killed you for it. I didn't realize that even in the midst of what seemed like total chaos, you were working for my good. Even in the midst of torture and death, you were working for my good. Brothers and sisters, if we're gonna have a faith that receives, we have to trust that God's character and his work are good. We have to see it, we have to know it, we have to believe it. As I thought about this and was reflecting on the goodness of God, the idea that kind of kept coming back to my mind was this concept of inevitability. No matter what we do, no matter what happens, God's character does not change. His work does not change. It is inevitable. It made me think of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River, like all rivers, has an endpoint, right? It's flowing somewhere, it's going somewhere, and it will, if you know anything about water, water is one of the most destructive forces on earth, and it will always go to the place it's supposed to end up. It will always run there, right? And so the Mississippi River, if you were to put your boat in the Mississippi River, it will end up where? Tell me where? The Gulf of Mexico, right? It's gonna flow down to the Gulf. The Mississippi River will always end up, it's inevitable that it will flow down to the Gulf. 
And for you and I, brothers and sisters, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, it is inevitable, inevitable that God will work for our good, that there are good things ahead of us. Romans 8, 28 says this, the Apostle Paul, a man well acquainted, right, with the goodness of God and his mercy and grace, says this, for those who love God, all things work together for good. What a bold promise. For those who love God, all things will work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Notice as we read this, who's at work? Is it you? No, it's God, right? God is the one working. For those, he, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And James, the author says to his audience, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, of his own choice, he brought us forth by the word of truth, by his son Jesus Christ, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We can trust in the character and the work of Jesus. God's good work is inevitable in your life and in mine. It was inevitable in the life of the disciples and the people that inhabited Jerusalem and the Gentiles that had been cast out and looked down upon, not because of what they would do, not because what we have done, but because of who God is. Amen? Jesus was working for their good. A faith that receives trust that God is good by reflecting on his character and works. And how do we do that? How do we do that practically? We do it by reading his word. We do it by understanding the great story, right? By understanding what God has done before us and what God is currently doing now in us. We do it by gathering each week in small groups and in worship to hear the word preached or to share the word with one another, to encourage each other. We do it by shouting with praise as we are led in worship by our talented brothers and sisters. One of my favorite moments at the avenue, if you remember or were with us when we used to worship in the evening over at Highland Heights Baptist Church, Tim and Ock did a rendition of Andrew Peterson's uh, He is Worthy. You're familiar with that? Mav City did a rendition that they were, I didn't know about at the time but they were imitating, right? And that song is this beautiful call and response. It's this call and response. The singer speaking, and then the audience saying, he is, he is affirming the things, right? That's how we learn to trust in the character and the work of God. Do you know what song I go to and put on when I'm at my worst moment and I believe that God could not love me, that God is not good? I put on that song. I sit in my car and I put on that song and I shout out, he is worthy, even though the deepest part of me is saying, that can't be true. Because in those moments, we must reflect and trust on the character and the work of Jesus Christ. And knowing that God's love and God's good work for you is inevitable, just as inevitable as a river running down to the gulf. Jesus is gonna ask us to take that trust and that faith and do something bold. He's gonna ask us to pray. Notice what he says next to the disciples. He's told, told them to have faith, and now he challenges them further. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, 
believe that you have received it. The Greek word there literally means that as you are speaking it, it is already done. And it will be yours. Now, if you're a Presbyterian, you're one of the frozen chosen, right? You're reading that, come on. That's not what that means. Ah, well, we gotta do a little bit of hermeneutics here. We gotta do a little bit of homiletical, exegetical work. What exactly in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, there are a couple of difficulties in the text. On the one hand, why does Jesus use, choose to use this illustration, illustration of something that is so clearly ridiculous? The idea of a mountain being lifted up and moved into the sea. There are a couple of thoughts. One, if you ask a scholar, a scholar is going to tell you, well, there are a couple of mountains. One, Jerusalem kind of sits on a hill. And another, Herod, who is ruling at the time, has literally, if you were to look, if you were to be standing where Jesus was standing at the time and look off to the distance, you would see where Herod had wiped a mountain clean off, moved it so that he could create his like mega, mega fortress, right? And so scholars will tell you, Jesus is just using this illustration because it's close at hand. But I think there's a little bit more to that, right? If we look at the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, we, see, we hear Isaiah saying this. Every val- He's talking about the works of the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground made level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In Isaiah 54, Isaiah talks about a mountain in relationship to the inevitability of God's goodness. He says this, For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. So here also, Jesus is using the the illustration of a mountain by challenging them with something that seems impossible. He is challenging their faith. The insanity of the idea that God could move a mountain is just as insane as the idea that a mountain could stand in the way of God. Does that make sense? If God wills it, God can do it. That is what Jesus is trying to emphasize here. If God wills it, God can do it. But that's not the only challenge that the text presents. Notice what Jesus says next. Next, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Is he literally saying that like a vending machine, we just go up, put in the correct change, hit our order, and out comes the thing that we wanted? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, let's turn first to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says again, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those of you who ask? Obviously, Jesus is serious, right? He's not just arbitrarily telling us to ask for things that he won't give us. He's saying ask because he has every intention of giving. But there's something that's unsaid, something that we have to take from the verses that come before it. 
Remember, Jesus has just gone into the temple, and when he enters the temple, he finds a people praying, concerned with whom? Are they concerned with God, or are they concerned with themselves, right? They're concerned with themselves. He finds an introspective, narcissistic faith, and he wipes that away, doesn't he? He comes in and violently rebukes it. And so what is not said, what is simply implied in this text is that when we ask, when we pray, we do so in accord with God's will. If God is not the focus of our prayer, then we need to do a little heart searching, right? That doesn't mean that we don't pray boldly. That doesn't mean that we don't ask hard things. It does mean that we need to check ourselves in the process. One commentator says it like this, faith believes enough to ask, and asking is rooted in the conviction that God intends that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something you may not know about me, if you know me a little bit, is that I love science fiction. I love science fiction books and science fiction stories. It's easy to hook me on a good science fiction show. And one of the most popular tropes in science fiction is the idea of time travel. Are you familiar with the idea of time travel? Well, a common problem that often comes up in any science fiction work revolving around time travel is the idea that I can go back in time, find something that is broken in the future and fix it here, and then theoretically go back and everything will be well, right? Is that what happens? No, absolutely not. Usually what happens is our hero or heroine goes back in time, fixes the thing they think is broken, and then comes back to find that everything has gotten exponentially worse than it was before, right? That things are all whacked out. They can't find their people. They can't find their home. Cities don't exist anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, can you imagine a world where you and I had the power of a God and we could just say, I want this to happen, and then it would happen? That would be insane. It would be no different than someone going back in time, fiddling with the things that they don't understand, and then coming back to discover, oh no, I wasn't omniscient. I didn't know it was going to go down, right? God isn't saying here that we simply get to impose our will on the world around us. And amen for that. Can you imagine what a broken humanity would do with a world that they could simply make whatever they want? We already mess it up bad enough, do we not, right? We are constantly, especially in a post-postmodern world, obsessed with the idea of utopia. But the funny thing about utopia, the utopia that we often seek, is that it really is just whatever our vision of perfection is, whatever the hot new theology or philosophy is, right? And God is saying, absolutely not. When he says, ask whatever you will and you will receive it and it will be done, He's implicit in all of that is that you and I have trusted in the character and the work of God and have aligned ourselves. We are walking that path with Jesus. And so as we pray, we can pray boldly. We can pray boldly knowing that God will and can move mountains. And we have to be careful because on the one side, we may be tempted to look at prayer as manifesting. Anybody familiar with manifesting? The idea of manifesting blows my mind. I could, be, I could get on my high horse right now and talk about it, but currently there's this idea that if you manifest something, if you just, I guess it's if you just think about it hard enough, if you want it bad enough, that you can make it happen, right? I watched a TikTok, TikTok is my guilty little pleasure. I got on TikTok, that's right, Tammy. 
got on TikTok, and there's this video of this girl who's literally on an airplane with her mother, and she says that she's manifested that they're on another airplane, and they've gone to another place. And you're just sitting there going, that is ridiculous, right? That, what are we talking about? That's not what Jesus is talking about, right? So we have to avoid even the minor thought that we can pray and just make it happen, right? Whatever we want, we're going to make it happen. But brothers and sisters, and perhaps this is the greater challenge for us in this room today, I know it is for me, we have to also avoid the thought that it doesn't matter what we pray, that God is not listening. You cannot read the story of Scripture and come away believing that God does not listen and that the prayers of the righteous do not matter. The book of Exodus is full of one man, Moses, praying over and over and over and over again, and God showing up. And sure, you can argue, oh, but Stephen, that was probably inevitable. If it wasn't Moses, it would be somebody else. But guys, it was Moses, and Moses did ask, and God did do. God even did when Moses asked the wrong way. God showed up. And for you and for I, the challenge Maybe not to be tempted to manifest, right? It may be not to be tempted to believe that it doesn't really matter anyway. But ultimately what it should be is just as simple as it sounds. Pray, pray, pray boldly. Maybe you just found out that someone in your family is sick and that they are dying. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you work at a school where it just seems like Things are chaotic. Will it ever be good? Do I have to grind this out for the rest of the time? Maybe your closest friends have abandoned you in your moment of need. I don't know. But what I do know is that God cares, that it matters to him, and that what he has commanded us to do is to take those things before the throne and to pray boldly that God would move. All you have to do, being in God's will is not complicated. It's simply this, trust Trust in the character and the work of Jesus Christ and then go before that, that Jesus and say, this is what's going on and I need you to work. You don't need to worry. Colossians 1 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Go to Jesus. You can trust that Jesus is working. Don't be afraid. Go and ask for the hard thing. And know that if it's not the right thing, if it's going to spin off into total chaos that you can't control, that there is a God who can control it. But also know that when you go before that God, that sometimes the things that you didn't even think would happen, happen, right? That God works boldly. The final part of our passage today has to do with forgiveness. And if I am being honest with you, I would tell you that I was really tempted to just gloss over the last verse, right? Because if you're reading this passage and you're trying to figure out what it means, it kind of seems like Jesus builds up to this bold prayer. He gives them a hard thing to do, promises that it will be done, and then he's like, oh, and as an aside, forgive. And so I spent a lot of time wrestling with what exactly does Jesus intend when he talks about forgiveness? 
But I believe that as we talk about a faith that receives, receives all that God has and will do for us, through us, in us, right? That a faith that receives also forgives others. And I want you to think a little bit differently about that word forgive. Think about it like this. A faith that receives bears fruit. And what's an example of bearing fruit? Forgiveness. What is the purpose? What was one of the key purposes of the temple? Forgiveness. Repentance. God's people would come with a sacrifice and ask God to forgive them for their sin. And so I don't think it's an accident that here at the very end, after God has exhorted his disciples to trust him, he's commanded them to pray with bold faith that he then says, but forgive, forgive. He's leading us down a path and he's showing us that a life rooted in a faith that receives is a life that is not only trusting, not only praying, but growing, right? Bearing fruit. And how do we bear fruit? Do we bear fruit in and of ourselves? Are we the ones who bring it about? No. If that's the way that we go, if that's the way that we think, we'll just become another temple, right? I think, I think about my own life. If I was left to my own devices and it were not for the grace of God in me, I could be a really good religious dude. It'd be great. I already am a pretty good religious dude, right? I can play by the rules. I can make things happen. I can talk the talk, walk the walk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's real easy. It's real easy to sniff out that falsity, right? All it takes is get a little bit closer to that tree. You ask, you ask my wife when I'm in my holiest moment, right? Oh, I might not be that holy after all, right? You might get close to that tree and discover they're not figs after all. And that's because the fruit does not grow on the vine unless the fruit abides in the vine, right? Unless we are abiding in Jesus Christ, we will not grow fruit. And so we have to trust. We have to pray. We have to believe that God is at work and that he will work inside of us. Otherwise, we will not bear fruit. And part of that work, part of that abiding is forgiving. It's going before Jesus and saying, I am coming to you trusting and knowing that you have forgiven me, that you have loved me, that you have accepted me. And for that reason, I'm gonna take those who have wronged me and I'm gonna lay them down. I'm not saying that there's still not beef to be had. I'm not saying that there's still not a wrong that's been done against you. And I am absolutely not saying that you have to now start it all over again and just let that person hurt you. What I am saying is that it's on you to forgive just as you have been forgiven, right? That is a work a work of a faith that receives within you. It is a powerful, powerful work. Where's some of my youth at? They're hanging back there in the back. Noah, I see you. A couple of years ago with the youth, I was uh, doing a Bible study. We did a Bible study on Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And this verse, and if you know anything about the story of Scripture, Exodus, Exodus is a really, 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 significant part of the story of Scripture. Because in the book of Exodus, God births a people out of slavery and death, right? And so for all of history, in fact, at this time in the book of Mark, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's coming during Passover. And do you know what Passover celebrates? The Exodus. Passover celebrates the redemption of God's people from slavery and death. And so when we look at the books of, book of Exodus, it is rich with knowledge and understanding about who God is and how God works. And this is what Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says. It says, Yahweh, 
Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, which think about that for a minute. It must have been building inside of Jesus when he came into that temple, right? And rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. And before you think, as you go to forgive your brother, that God is a pushover and he will not stand for you, Exodus tells us, but God will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Exodus holds intention a God that is both more incredibly gracious than you could ever dare to imagine, and a God who is more just and stands on your side more than you could ever imagine. Because in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, you come before God guilty and wrong. Your sins have been passed from generation to generation to generation. And in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, those sins are wiped away, right? That wrongdoing is wiped away. And so when we read Exodus, we cry out and we say, Yahweh, Yahweh, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. God, I can trust you. I can receive that which you have set for me to receive because I can trust in your character and your work. I can go before you and pray boldly because you are clearly bigger than the mountains, right? If God wills it, God can do it. I can go before you in prayer with a heart that forgives others knowing full well, full well that there is a debt to be paid and that my brother, just as I, can go before you and have that debt paid and that if he does not, that there is a punishment waiting for him, right? Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is amazing news. But it's also difficult. It's hard to believe. Maybe you come here this morning and you're thinking, you really did when I asked that question. Man, I don't believe that God desires good in me, through me, or for me, right? I don't believe that. That's hard to believe. I struggle with that too but there's one more promise I want you to hold on to. There's a parallel passage to Mark chapter 11 in the book of Matthew, and Jesus adds something a little bit extra to this, and he says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, now a mustard seed, if you know anything about it, if you spent any time in a VBS or a Sunday school, tiny, 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 tiny little seed, you can barely see it. And again, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's saying, it may barely exist, but it is all that is necessary to receive all that God wants to do for you, through you, and in you, right? It may barely exist, but it is all that is necessary. Because why? Is it on you? No. It is on the work and the person, the love, the character, the gracious and goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so as we come before the Father this morning in communion, my prayer for us and my challenge to you is this. Ask a hard thing. Take that thing that's sitting on your heart that you don't believe God cares about, that you don't believe God could do. Maybe it's simply, I just don't believe that you are who you say you are. This man's standing on this stage talking about you, and I'm just, he's full of BS, right? Or maybe, maybe it is one of those things we discussed before, something that you don't, you're not even sure you want to talk about. As we come before the Lord in communion, we reflect on his character and his work. We reflect on the fact that 
with the faith of a mustard seed, a faith that may barely exist, that God has justified us through his son, Jesus Christ. So come before that God. Ask that God for the hard thing. Ask that God to bring healing, to bring hope, to bring God. Because if God wills it, God can do it. Amen?